Welcome back to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And the holidays are they're kind of over, right? We still have one more to go. Well, let's see. By the time you're watching this, it will be New Year's Eve. And we have Russian Christmas after that, so the, that's an important oh, yeah. date for Before all of us, obviously. That. Of course. Yeah. Um, Do you celebrate that with Putin? Are you going to be on a Zoom with Putin? I'm, I'm going to be in his lap. No, no, nuzzling on him. Lap, not on, yeah. but in. In his lap. I will be in the lap of Putin. <laughs> in father's lap. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to have a really interesting show. We have a, 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 a really interesting guest who's going through a, a hellacious situation right now. And Mark Crispin Miller, professor at uh, New York University, who's, um, who's who's going through just yet expedited. another one of these. Yeah, an expedited like canceling episode that just kind of hits all the worst notes of of uh of these of these things and we got some uh some news to catch up uh, with because we've been gone uh for yeah. two weeks now sorry so, guys so we, why don't we just hit that quickly and let's do the the, the four food groups uh, republicans suck democrats suck uh isn't that uh terrible isn't that weird you're up first right yeah democrats suck. yes i am so let's go uh for democrats suck so if we could just uh play this video uh shout out to Catherine rose fisher by the way my name is Catherine rose we can talk about that another time, whose handle is K Rose F. Uh, and she tweeted out, uh, Senate Democratic Whip Sen Durbin is on the floor right now, opposing Bernie Sanders' call to hold up the NDAA to get a stimulus increase. Let's just watch the video. They came up with a good bill, one I was proud to support. This annual legislation has been signed into law for six consecutive decades. When the Senate fails to do anything, they always do the National Defense Authorization Bill. It shows that Congress can come together, at least on this measure, when it comes to supporting our men and women in uniform and keeping our country safe. This year, the bill authorizes $740.5 billion in defense spending. It provides another 3% well-deserved pay raise for our troops. It also recognizes that many in the armed forces are on the front lines here at home as well, helping fight the ongoing COVID-19 epidemic, providing our troops with necessary benefits and protections, including a 10% increase in hazardous duty pay. The bill also includes a number of provisions that I authored and supported, including language expressing strong support for the Baltic states and Ukraine, especially in the face of continued unforgivable Russian aggression. It requires the renaming of military bases in the United States, which were once named in honor of Confederate generals, those who served in the Confederacy in an attempt to secede from the Union and to defend the institution of slavery, have been enshrined in the names of these bases for many, many years. This effort to rename them is long, long overdue. It tries to correct and recognize the mistakes of our past and really address the sensitive racial inequities at the Pentagon when it comes to this decision making. So we got, um, let's see what we have there. The Russians, um, imperial wokeness or woke imperialism, right? So it's good. Look, and I, I'm, I'm fine with, I think renaming is, it is long overdue. I'm not sure that we need to pit renaming uh, monuments against uh, giving people $2,000. I'm not sure Americans think that one should be. We sexual. should build a monument to that. To what? 
to not to, giving people two thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, we should build a monument to. We should instead of like Robert E. Lee, it should just be a a, a statue of a negative sign and two thousand. Like the general, you got shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Like with general the- six hundred is over the top. Right. Um, but uh, and then yeah, the Russia stuff. Glad we're supporting you, Ukraine. Uh, that's really important. Definitely it's really important for us for to, ra- to ratchet up tensions in the Baltic states. And, yeah, I know uh, it's so great. Yeah. Uh, and you know, of course, it was so great to do it when Trump was president. Also, which I just again just pick a narrative. Cheeto Mussolini, you want him to ratchet things up with Putin? Okay. Oh, making the Pentagon more divert, more representative. Right. Yes. Yes. Because you want when you are bombing black and brown people, it's a lot better to have someone black or brown at the helm of yeah, that it's got to look like it has to look like a benetton commercial yeah in, in the control room in fact they should be wearing benetton clothes, clothes. Frankly. in fact benetton should be uh sponsoring this they should yeah uh, in fact they are yeah they are yeah <laughs> we, we, we have just... it on good we have it on good authority that was product I mean, placement. placement yeah yeah benetton we're open to that yeah uh yeah that's just it's just like disgusting and really the democrats are not on board with this this is like, who is it, Bernie and um, Markey? Right, Biz yes. Markey. Like, why is this controversial? Well, look, and this is, I mean, do you want, should we just flow into mine? Because it, it goes straight sure, straight yeah. into the same thing. So, so my Republicans suck. McConnell blocks Democrats' attempt to quickly approve $2,000 stimulus checks amid pressure on GOP to act, right? And so, I mean, I think we see a theme developing here. Which yeah, can that, you, as the as the kind of economist finance guy, can you explain what uh, what happened, what Sanders was proposing or trying to do? Yeah, he was he was blocking the National Defense Authorization Act, right? So, which never never gets blocked, right? Good right. So that's him. that that's why everybody's mad at him because because like, it's bad form. Except right. the people who are grateful to him, right? Who but, are not elected? Who are not political and media elites? So, but I think everybody should notice a little bit of a pattern here, which is that um, all the people who have something politically at, at stake, right? Now you see down in this in this uh, Washington Post story, you'll see that the, both both of the uh, the Georgia Republican candidates, uh, David yeah. Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, um, they're out there. Therefore, the two thousand dollar checks. Yeah. Trump, Trump is is suddenly for it, um, and Chuck Schumer, the same Chuck Schumer, uh, who not long ago put Mark Warner and uh, and Joe Manchin in charge of um, of coming up with the bipartisan deal that didn't have the two thousand dollar checks. Now he's upset at Mitch McConnell for opposing a two thousand dollar check saying it's a blatant attempt to deprive Americans of a $2,000 survival check. Right. So it's it's a hot potato it game. Also, it, was that, it was also that when uh, Manchin and uh, Warner were opposing it. Of course. Like, th- this is just, yeah. you know, Bernie's sincere about this. I think, I think, we, can, I think we can say with, with some uh, confidence that he and actually so wants uh, people to get the $2,000 checks. But the, this is the way basically Washington works, which is that there'll be a certain number of people who'll be in, who get to be in favor of the populist thing. But there's always going to be enough Mitch McConnells uh, and at critical moments, 
Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's to make sure that certain things just don't get passed, right? And and Dick Durbin's, right? And Durbin, if you remember correctly, he was one of the people who, if you who, remember, uh, yeah, uh, you know, he was he was one of the first people to express a willingness to pass a uh, a COVID relief bill. Um, that didn't include state and local aid or the two thousand dollar checks. So it's with just, Democrats like these, right? Exactly, them. and it's it's like okay, so Mitch McConnell's a uh, a Grinch, right? And he's always the bad guy in basically every every yeah. narrative, and he is. He's he's he sucks. He's horrible. Um, but it's just he, he is a stain on turtles. Right, right. Uh, but it's it's just always it's. It's just interesting the way that when the when it finally comes time to vote, as the, as Durbin puts it, magically they never seem to have problems yeah. getting that seven hundred forty billion dollar defense bill passed. Yeah, and it's also like it's so out of touch. I mean, I guess in a way it's in it's it's like a a useful or or logical strategic thing to do because there is so much like rah rah imperialism in this country, or quote unquote patriotism. But there is also fatigue. Like there, I think people more and more are getting sick of the idea uh, of spending more money uh, fighting wars than um, doing oh, absolutely. things here. And on both on both sides on of both the sides, aisle, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, like that was a big talking point for Trump for in Trump, 2016, right. which is that we, you know, we got to spend more money, you yeah. know, building bridges at, at home. I mean, he didn't do yeah. it, but right, right, right. Rhetorical commitment that yeah. he did not do. But it's like, doesn't he get that that's kind of a, I mean, he's just kind of showing and not just telling the situation. Like there is bipartisan consensus um, for around funding um, the military industrial complex and uh, not bipartisan consensus around helping people survive. Specifically people like there is a bipartisan consensus for a massive open ended Fed fueled bond buying program, right? You know, because because who could possibly dispute the wisdom of making sure that, you know, all of our national treasure is is committed to propping up the financial markets and not even all the essential ones like junk bonds included like but the the significant chunk of people who are looking at eviction and who, who are going to food banks right now like it's an emergency i mean i i don't know i'm not an expert i don't know what the the best course of action is but it's it's just so glaring that uh some people seem more concerned about that than others that i don't know and the argument that you know what i love also the speaking of bipartisan consensus you have fox news anchors um saying this which is that uh, people are, you know, have more money to spend. They can't go out to bars or restaurants. So they're just like stock, you know, they're just hoarding bills and cash and they're probably burning it right now and, you know, smoking cigars and everything as they do that because um, all working class is turned into a bunch of fat cats. Uh, right. Pandemic. But then you have Larry Summers. Yeah. And, and we, do you want to talk about this? We can talk, we can yeah. talk about this. Well, or right? should we go through, yeah, we can do an in, a little interruption of the four basic food groups, leave you in suspense and then go back to those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, Larry, Larry Summers, the former Clinton Treasury Secretary, the former uh, Barack Obama's former head of the National Economic Council, um, former chief economist at the World Bank, uh, former friend president of, of Harvard. Uh, right. Friend of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's. Friend of Jeffrey Epstein's. Just sort of a, a famously unattractive 
villainous personality who has said some pretty amazing things uh, in his career, including <laughs> including that the the um, uh, underpopulated uh, countries of Africa are vastly underpolluted, and and he's done some terrible things, right? Like in terms of deregulation, and didn't he? Well, have yes. He, I mean, that? he was he was involved in in the uh, repeal of Glass Steagall, the the sort of hyper concentration of the banking industry that allowed. Citigroup to form, and then he was ignored all the warnings about derivatives uh, that came from people like Brooksley Bourne at the CFTC. So he's sort of a zealot of the financial crisis, right? And then he took a ton of money from the banks um, uh, before rejoining the Obama Obama administration uh, and helping door. helping helping guide the bailout policy. So he right. came out with this thing in response to the Bernie thing. Uh, he went on TV the day before Christmas, and basically what he said is, anytime you see Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley agreeing about something, you know it's got to be wrong. So he's he's working backwards from that uh, assumption, which is awesome to begin with, right? Uh, and then he he just he went through like a, a litany of all the reasons why uh, two thousand dollar checks to individual people are, and and essentially what he says is, is that overall uh, household income uh, as a percentage of the economy's potential is uh, significantly higher than it was before. Uh, now, that sounds confusing to a lot of people, but essentially what they're saying is the reality is that there is a big chunk of people whose income hasn't been affected by the, the pandemic, but they have less stuff to spend it on. They're not going to restaurants right they're not doing all kinds of things so they have all this cash that's not doing a whole lot right and so i guess if you aggregate out everything uh you could you could i guess make the argument that dumping more cash into the population is not uh is not needed right which is what what he's arguing yeah he uh, he warns that it will overheat the economy which is right. funny uh which of course which is hilarious because when they did the you know gazillion dollar bailouts in 2008 that had no limits and they did quantitative easing which was another trillions more dollars which was uh, and they did the cares act last year which was trillions more dollars and they were pumping money into the into the economy. Nobody was worrying about inflation. Right. Where was he there? Where Sud was he warning against uh, overheating then? Right. But if you're giving money to individual people um, who just happen to need it, right, as right. opposed to whatever it is, then so, then suddenly uh, we got to worry about inflation. And, and he even had the gall to say he's not, I'm not even that enthusiastic about the six hundred dollars. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there are people who agree with him. I mean, there there are economists who, yeah. out, out there who will say, oh, well, this isn't the best way to do it. We should have targeted this or that. There should be more means testing or whatever. No, no. Good. That's it's fine. Whatever. It, it's just that this guy, he's a symbol of this kind of person who ha who has um, no issue. There's with spending any amount of money right. taxpayer fed or otherwise when it's the military the ba a bailout right. um shouldn't you know. he be banned from polite society <laughs> i mean i don't know i mean i, thought, I mean he should not be a meet an authority 
Yeah, just like, just just for his whole role in the Facebook thing, I think he should be he should. What was uh, that? He, he, you ever see social, uh, the social yeah. network? Yeah. So the, when the Winklevoss twins went to complain that Mark Zuckerberg had ripped them off, Larry Summers was basically like, "What's your problem? Come up with another idea." All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he didn't kind of get that this was actually a real. Right. But, That's uh, yeah. He has no. They're so he's so out of touch and and like. I mean, it makes sense. The guy didn't get into trouble for any of this stuff. So why would he ever think he had to be at all? He doesn't even have to pander. He doesn't even have to pretend to care. It's just it, guys like Summers and Bob Rubin and Michael Froman and Jason Furman and all these economists who are always around this this Biden, Clinton, whatever, like that wing of the Democratic Party it's been so long since they've had to interact with actual people that they're just, they just don't, this all makes sense to them, you know? Yeah, and um, ironically, Hillary Clinton warned about this, remember? Or admitted this in the Goldman Sachs tape, I think. Right, you know, yes. Worried that we're getting out of touch, which is like probably the most uh, in touch thing she ever said. Well, well, I always thought that was funny because she was so much more like accessible and yeah. warm awesome and uh, yeah in that talk with goldman that she was right. uh, anyway the summer's thing is hilarious it's, it's just it's just a classic example of kind of american aristocrats yeah. and how they don't they don't know how they sound you know also uh, as a jew i'd really like him to stop doing that and that whole group you named we do not they do not represent us <laughs> we would like to draft them kick them out and they are not the faces well, they are, even but they're not right. representative. All right. So returning to the to the four food groups, what do we have for? Uh... Isn't that terrible? It is possible to overdose on candy, at least if you're eating black licorice. That's because it contains a compound known to be toxic in large doses. In an extreme case of this happening, a man in Massachusetts died after eating too much black licorice. Huh. The 54-year-old man suddenly lost consciousness after experiencing a life-threatening heart rhythm problem, according to a report of the case published September 23rd in the New England Journal of Medicine. But that's okay. We're doing a retrospective of 2020. His family said the man had a poor diet, and in recent weeks, he had consumed one to two large packages of black licorice every day. Despite receiving multiple treatings in the intensive care unit, the man died 32 hours after arriving at the hospital. Um, it does death by licorice. this death by licorice. It does death by a thousand liquor. eye. right. <laughs> I like it. Uh, it does contain a compound called, uh, glycerin derived from licorice root. Um, and, uh, it can be dangerous because it lowers the body's potassium levels. And this in turn can lead to high blood pressure and abnormal heart rhythms. And the FDA says eating just two ounces of black licorice a day for two weeks can cause heart rhythm problems, particularly for people ages 40 and over. So this is a, uh, this is a, not just an isn't that terrible, but it's kind of a cautionary tale mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't know that. And you know, my dad really likes licorice, so I'm gonna have to tell him. Hmm. Um, I feel like that didn't really land for you. No, so no, 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 it, it did. I mean, look, I, 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 I love stories about medical oddities. Right. And um, used to be a big fan of a, of a writer named Berton Ruiche. who used to write medical mystery stories that were, came from real life. And one of, one of the key plots in a lot of his stories is that he's just don't eat a lot of the same thing. 
okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if you, if you eat too many carrots, you're going to get carotinitis and you're going to turn orange or whatever orange, it is, right. or, yeah. or, or red or whatever it is. I mean, um, I'm going to, I'm going to guess if you eat too much of anything to the exclusion of anything else, uh, of other things that it's going to be bad for you. Right. right. Well, I don't have anything to match. All I got is a, is a, is a video uh, from a character who's appeared on our show before. Yeah. Uh, Dan, if we, if we could see this headline, isn't that weird? Uh, the headline uh, in the story reads, Boston Dynamics robots are dancing now, and yes, it's still scary. So I, I think most people know Boston Dynamics are like, they're, they're sort of a YouTube uh, phenomenon because they have these kind of horrifying looking robots that uh, they keep releasing videos of doing things like walking through the wilderness and Massachusetts or anyway, uh, they've, they are really like PR conscious and they're always trying to like get, go viral with their videos and they've done it again. Damn. If we could watch this video, it's pretty good because they, they use a, uh, a hit from the, from the early sixties. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, it goes on. And needless to say, great work. But uh, Dan, if we can go back to that story, I had exactly the same reaction as like most of the people on Twitter that they that they, um, that they they cited. <laughs> Here we go. At uh, Cody Co writes, totally personally looking forward to getting killed by one of these and then having it do the crank that dance on my body. Um, this is what they'll do when they'll win. Oh, look, someone taught robots how to dance in our graves. So, yeah, I mean, my first reaction when I saw that video was that I just was imagining them, you know, doing that as they were pulling my larynx out in, in some, you know, policing situation. But uh, anyway, isn't that weird? That is weird. That's creepy. It's That's creepy. creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I am kind of divided on the whole Boston Dynamics thing because the, the machines are kind of awesome. I don't like the dog. You don't like the dog? It looks like a dinosaur. Its tail looks like the head of a dinosaur. It I mean, would freak it, me out. If it would it, freak if... me out. I mean, so would the the people. I guess the whole thing is robot apologia, though. Right. I mean, I, the, theoretically, they're using it for like, oh my god, there's somebody like stuck up in a mountain. We have he has to be saved. So let's go send. But through know, dance, through the art of dance. Let's send our dancing robot up up the face of the Alps to go, uh, you know, tirelessly walk you down, you know, the slopes. Uh, but, uh, but I, I just don't see it that way. I mean, I, I know that's how I'm supposed to think of it, but. It right. Well, work. that's good. That means you're, you're skeptical. Yeah. Yeah. Skeptic. Which incidentally is the, the, the subject of our discussion with our guest. Yeah. Uh, today, um, who we might as well introduce. Might Professor, as well. Uh, Mark Crispin Miller uh, from New York university. Who's just, he's just in some shit right now. I mean, yeah. uh, he first of all we should preface mark um uh was became pretty well known in uh, in media circles in during the bush years uh he wrote a book that i that i love called the bush bush dyslexicon uh which was a a pretty hilarious chronicling of the unintentional comedy of everything that george bush said uh his reputation is, is absolutely as uh, until recently, was absolutely right. as like a you know blue friendly 
liberal Democrat. Yeah, he pushed back. Well, I think more a little more the left than that, right? But but definitely definitely friendly to Dems in his um, documenting Bushisms, like the Bush dyslexicon, and also documenting um, what he said was uh, voter theft in two thousand two thousand four. So, uh, but he has uh, aroused some critics with his views on masks and electoral fraud and some other things and got in trouble in his class uh, for suggesting that somebody read some alternative research about masks. Now, uh, there are people who are going to react emotionally to that, but when you actually listen to what he has to say, it's more about the whole issue of are we allowed to seek out other sources of information and what happens when we do. And this is this is a pretty scary story. So yeah, uh, and and I actually think that there is an interesting discussion to be had about um, tenure, and you know, the thing that he's being accused of, which he did not do, is of telling uh, his students to violate uh, NYU's mask policy. Right. Um, that's in diff- I think that's a kind of interesting, tricky, trickier case. To me, this is not that tricky. My my take on this is that they when when there are efforts to censor people, they never come out and say we we really want to censor you. They, right. They, what they say is, oh well, we have to do this. Isn't censorship? This is just being concerned about public health, or this right. is this is a national security issue. I mean, look, right. if you look at the Facebook, Twitter, Google, like what what have they cracked down on? They've cracked down on. Uh, information that they say could lead to people deciding not to vote or uh, not having confidence in elections. Yeah, that's that's I mean, yeah, that's totally obscene and and absurd. Right. But they always they always present it as, well, it's not a speech issue. This is health. This is this is security. This is all these other things. Um, But, you know, ultimately it is. And the, the tenure issue, let's let's be frank, they're trying to create a new conception of what tenure is in in America, which is much more highly conditional than it used to be. Just in case people are wondering about the origins of tenure, reading at AAUP, the modern conception of tenure in U.S. higher education originated with the 1940 Statement of Principles on Academic Freedom and Tenure. And uh, it gained the endorsement, uh, jointly formulated and endorsed by the uh, AAUP and the Association of American Colleges and Universities. The 1940 statement has gained the endorsement of more than 250 scholarly and higher education organizations. Uh, it is widely adopted into faculty handbooks and collective bargaining agreements at institutions of higher education throughout the United States. Basically, it's designed to make you bulletproof in terms of you know, you can't be fired for stuff you say. Right. Uh, or really for almost any other reason. But the boundaries of this are being eaten away at. And this is, uh, this story seems to be one of a sort of a classic example. So um, without further ado, let's let's talk to Mark Christian. Welcome to Useful Idiots. Uh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. I, I'm grateful for this. For folks who don't know, uh, you're you're in the middle of uh, what sounds like a, a, a classically horrible uh, academic dispute. Uh, could you give us the outlines a little bit of, of what, what you're dealing with at the moment? Yeah, I'll try to make this uh, um, as, as clear and succinct as possible. I've been teaching at NYU since 1997. And uh, I, I 
it's media studies is my field basically. And one of the courses I've, I've taught every year, every semester really, and sometimes even more than that is a course on propaganda. It's uh, always fully enrolled, waitlisted, very popular with students. Now, this is where the, the trouble started uh, this, this particular semester. Uh, although there were a few things that happened earlier in the year that, that should have told me something was up. But um, what, what happened was um, I, I began the course, as I always do, by making clear that my approach to the subject of propaganda is not to treat it as some ancient thing where we look at the Nazis, we look at the Bolsheviks, maybe we talk about World War I, maybe we talk about McCarthyism, right? Uh, we, we definitely look at those uh, earlier examples, but, but the focus of the course, the mission of the course is to try to teach students how to recognize it in real time, make an effort to assess its claims impartially, even if you agree with them, uh, and then uh, see if you can discern the hallmarks of a propaganda drive, because it always comes disguised as news or entertainment or something like that. Figure out who's behind it and what its purpose is. And I, I make this abundantly clear. It is, it is a difficult thing to do, intellectually difficult. It can even be socially and psychologically difficult to be skeptical to that degree, right? So uh, I said, as I always do, uh, you know, we would naturally focus on some of the things that are going on now. For example, look at the way we're meeting. I mean, we're meeting via Zoom. This is uh, eloquent testimony to the success of the whole COVID crisis propaganda. And propaganda does not have to be- a, False. Right. A pe right, pejorative. Nefarious, as you yeah. said. No. Something I, I mean, read, yeah. A campaign to get you to wear your seatbelts in a car, that's propaganda. Uh, but uh, propaganda it is anyway, and so we would want to deal with it. For example, we might want to look at the mask mandates. Uh, I would encourage you to look at uh, a body of very interesting scientific studies, uh, eight randomized controlled studies conducted over the last 15 years or so among healthcare professionals of the effectiveness of masks against respiratory viruses because the consensus of those studies and and those are the most rigorous kind of scientific study randomized controlled uh, studies the consensus is that they're not really effective i would encourage you to read those i'll send you the links i also think you should read more recent studies finding otherwise and i gave some guidance as to how a layperson can assess the soundness of scientific studies. Cause I mean, I'm not a scientist, right? And they're not scientists, most of them. Uh, I said, for example, there are scientific reviews of these studies, you, you can find them. In some cases, there's uh, actual press coverage of very public objections to studies. And you'll wanna look at the universities where these studies were done and see if they have financial arrangements with big pharma companies or, or get money from the Gates Foundation, because this might suggest some kind of conflict of interest. Okay, I, I, I said all this. Mm -hmm. I also said I want to add, I said pointedly, I am not telling you not to wear masks. Okay, NYU mm -hmm. has a strict rule. 
I observe the rule. Uh, this is an intellectual exercise, or would be if you did it. Right. Okay. All right. So that that happened, <laughs> and then the following week, or maybe a little later, a, a a student emailed me and asked to join late. And I, as I always do, I said sure. You know, more the merrier. And she joined us. And um, the second day she was there, uh, she had spoken up at one point the first day about. Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda, which we were discussing. The next day, the mask thing came up again. So, so that little bit resumed. And uh, she didn't say anything. That was on a Thursday. And then early the next week, I get a call from my department chair asking me in a kind of accusatory tone, I think he asked me if I had discouraged them from wearing masks. Or did, did I have them read something that suggested they don't work? And I, I, whatever he asked me, I said, well, this is what I said. This is what happened. And he said, oh, well, um, I'm going to have to tell the dean's uh, COVID uh, task force, whatever it's called. I said, okay, well, what's up? And he told me that a student had gone on Twitter and uh, d demanded that I be fired. Okay. It's the first I'd heard of this. And the first time anything like this has ever happened, of course, uh, a, a class like this will get students bristling. You know, it'll, it'll get students disagreeing. I always say throughout the semester, do not believe a single word I say. I'm not an oracle. Okay. I'm not doing propaganda here. I'm trying to teach you how to do your own research and make up your own minds. So if I say anything that strikes you as out, outrageous or crazy, or I, I never thought of that before. Just look into it. Okay. Look into it. If you find that I'm wrong, then let me know and I'll correct myself. But that's what the course is about. It's completely open. Okay. She didn't do that. She just went online and not just one tweet, but a whole stream of tweets demanding I be fired. I'm putting the students at risk. She took screenshots from my web, uh, website, News from Underground, as I send stuff out to a big listserv every day, all kinds of information on many subjects. And it's, it's always stuff that people should know and we don't know because the media has blacked it out and, or misreported, etc. She you know, put up all these screenshots and uh, uh, like they were self-evidently false and she said they were from right wing and conspiracy sites. Okay. That was, and, and this is 2020. You have to take any kind of call for your job seriously on Twitter, right? Well, sure, sure. So I was, I was, well, I, therefore, you know, I was, I was of course not happy about this attack, but what really uh, troubled me, shocked me was that my chair tweeted to her, tweeted his thanks and said, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Okay. This took my breath away. We as a department, I'm in the department. I've been in the department for 23 years. Nobody asked me anything. Yeah, which we, yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, then the next day, the dean and the doctor who advises NYU on its really draconian uh, COVID um, rules, which have led to lawsuits and so on, emailed my other students without putting me on copy 
basically saying that I had given, oh, first there was a ritual nod to academic freedom, which they all do. So we, we respect academic freedom. But uh, hinting uh, strongly that I'd given them really dangerous misinformation and providing links to what they said were authoritative studies from the CDC. Studies which I also had urged them to read and, and not pointing out in his email uh, that the CDC itself had echoed the consensus of those studies until early April, and then it abruptly pivoted. And the WHO did the same thing, World Health Organization. They pivoted. Not the band. Sorry? Not the band, but the no, World not, Health not, Organization. Not, Unfortunately, not the band, right? The World Health Organization. <laughs> that would have carried maybe a little bit less import, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Well, it would have been better to dance to, anyway. <laughs> so, um, so they said that, you know, you got to read these, basically saying, these are the truth, read these, which is the opposite of what I do. Right. And then they ended by, by warning them that they have to wear their masks as if I had told them not to. All right. So that, that was the second punch. And the third punch came when my chair basically pressed me to cancel the propaganda course for next semester <laughs> on the grounds that my film course, as I often teach that too, a film course, uh, is so heavily enrolled that if I were to do two sections of that instead of the two courses, uh, it would be really good for the department's numbers. And I, I can relate to that argument. The problem with it is that both courses have the same uh, limit, uh, 24 students. I usually have 26 or 27. So that was just a pretext. All right, so all this happened. And it, it, it prompted me and some friends to draft a petition simply urging NYU to respect my academic freedom. But this is crucial, not just on my own behalf, okay? This petition on change.org is really on behalf of all professors, journalists, activists, scientists, doctors, whistleblowers, anyone who has been gagged or punished for um, their dissidents on many subjects. Something that's actually been going on since the 60s, since the Kennedy assassination, when, when any inquiry into the truth of the Warren report was nailed as conspiracy theory. And it would be a career killer for a professor to dig, or a journalist to dig into that. And, and that just got worse over the decades. Gulf of Tonkin, any of those things. Yeah, right. right, but Bobby's assassination, King's assassination, then there's 9-11, then there's all this other stuff. And now, uh, since this uh, COVID crisis started, it's, it's off the charts uh, between, well, let, let me uh, put bracket that and I'll get back to it because uh, there's an interesting point to make about all this. The petition, uh, which was garnering tens of thousands of signatures and to date it has like 25,000 and it includes some very, very eminent people. Uh, it incensed my colleagues, my department colleagues, or most of them, about 25 of them, prompting them a month after the student uh, demanded my head uh, to send a letter to the dean demanding what they called an expedited review of my conduct, not just because of what I'd said about masks, which they said, um, they said I had intimidated students who were wearing masks and discouraged them from wearing them, which is typical of the letter. But far worse than that, 
because of my egregious brutality in the classroom and my crackpot views. Okay, this was this is stunning reading uh, to see myself accused of, and I'm quoting now, explicit hate speech, attacks on students and others what, in our what was, community. What, what was your hate speech supposed to be? Um, can we can we defer sure. that because mm-hmm. um, I can answer that, but it, it it had nothing to do with anything I've said in class. But they said I I, I engaged in explicit hate speech in class, um, attacks on students, advocating for an unsafe learning environment, uh, aggressions and microaggressions. You know every sin in the um, social justice hymnal was invoked to uh, cast me as this alt right brute, this bigot. Uh, which was just so false as to be, as to seem insane, you know. Well, they asked for this review, and the, the way I heard about this letter was the dean emailed me and said, I've, I've, I've uh, ordered this review of your conduct because of this letter, which I hadn't even known about, and there it was. So I was uh, gobsmacked by this. And, you know, I mean, I was, thought I was friends with some of these people. I've known them for a very long time. I asked the provost what to do, and she said, ask for a meeting with the dean. So I had one, uh, this kind of meeting, you know. And uh, it was he's very vague. He said uh, the lawyers at NYU had instructed him uh, and the provost that they had to do the review, which is actually not true. And so he was doing it. So you have tenure, don't you? Yeah. Isn't tenure, d- d- isn't the whole point of it to prevent exactly the situation? Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> tenure was instituted to protect faculty who might be teaching on popular, uh, you know, t- taboo subjects or, right. or taking a, an unpopular position. I believe it was. Yeah, I believe it was in the uh, during the Red Scare after World War One. I, I, I think it was in response to that. I could be wrong, but that's why we have tenure. You know, we don't have tenure because we're so brilliant. We have the right to make a living uh, pursuing our research. We have tenure to protect our free speech. So uh, yeah, I have it, and it would be a tough uh, uh, sell for them to fire me over this, but that is the intention here, uh, because the, the, my colleagues made it clear that. Oh, they, they respect academic freedom. Don't get them wrong. But when someone's conduct is as egregious as mine, it, it, it nullifies academic freedom according to the faculty hand, the NYU faculty handbook. That was their argument. So they're trying to get me fired. So they're, so they're basically trying to create like tenure with an asterisk, basically, well, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and Mark, it can't, it can't possibly be that they don't understand the concept of in propaganda, we try to read everything, right? Like it's it's it can't possibly be an actual understanding issue. This this is this must be have something else to do. It must be some other kind of bureaucratic dispute. Do you suspect that there there are views that you've held previously that they disagree with, or that other people in your department disagree with, or that your dean disagrees with, and that this has become a pretext? And if so, what might those things be? Well, that's a that's a big question, and I'll I'll try I'll try to answer it because it, it it's an excellent question and an important one. First of all, I think my colleagues are sincerely outraged by some of my uh, views or what they think my views are. 
now see if they were in my class, I, I could I could actually engage them uh, in in a conversation about some of the things they think I said. Uh, one of the things they claim in their letter is that I've denied on my website. I've denied Sandy Hook happened. Okay. MarkCrispinMiller.com. Anyone can go there and do a search on Sandy Hook, and they'll see that it doesn't come up once. I don't mention it. What they're referring to, and what what incensed them apparently, is um, the fact that in a in a class, in a propaganda class, I think it was after a some group reports. I have them do reports in groups on school shootings and how they've been covered and so on. Uh, after that discussion, uh, someone mentioned Sandy Hook, which was the first in the series of school shootings that have, you know, uh, been so high profile in this uh, last decade. Uh, Columbine was much earlier, and that was that was very different. I, I said, you know, there is some very interesting research on Sandy Hook that is um, troubling and very challenging. Uh, uh, and I dismissed it out of hand till I read it, and I have to say there's something to it. And so if you're interested in this, you might read it. And I, I mentioned this book, a collection of essays. That's what I, that, was my, that was my denying that Sandy Hook happened. So clearly, a student in the class reacted in precisely the way I urged them to try not to act in the class. Just heard me say that about Sandy Hook maybe he had some other grievance against me and went and told some of my colleagues that he's denied Sandy Hook occurred. And then they all said, see, typical, he's denied Sandy. They say, they say in their letter that I, I promote non-evidence-based uh, uh, claims, which in a letter filled with non-evidence-based claims is pretty rich, you know. But um, so that, you know, that's an example of I, what I take to be their, their sincere discomfiture with my engaging precisely the sort of subject that most academics and journalists and others are sort of trained to avoid because you get in trouble if you talk about them. But the, the whole course, as your question implies, Matt, the whole course is sort of about that. You know, we can always easily spot the propaganda that we don't agree with. You ask any liberal, what's propaganda? They'll say, oh, Fox. Fox right. News. You ask any conservative, what's propaganda? They'll say MSNBC. Okay, they're both right. You know, both are propagandistic. But what they can't see is the propaganda that, that they agree with because they think it's just information. They think it's just the truth. So uh, there's that. Now, your larger question is what, what is going on here, right? Why, why, did, the, why did NYU's lawyers... Um, advised the dean he had to do this when we know for a fact that that there are no grounds for doing this no legal grounds and i say this on the basis of a really terrific letter that uh, fire a foundation for individual rights in education a great nonprofit in philadelphia they sent a long detailed letter which i sent you to uh, nyu's president andrew hamilton laying out all the grounds, uh, uh, all the reasons why there are no grounds for this uh, review, which is illegitimate, and urging him to step in and quash it, a request that he has ignored. He has uh, done nothing, said nothing. Um, and so 
one must ask, how did all this happen and why? I mean, here's a student who took to Twitter, but it took off like wildfire. It was all over the place. I heard from all kinds of people I hadn't heard from uh, in, in years, like concerned about me. And there were three media attacks on me, uh, one in Gothamist, one on City and State, which called me a loser, one of the losers of the week, biggest losers of the week. And then there was some student publication. They all attacked me without interviewing me. And um, what is this organic? Did this just happen spontaneously? Uh, my experience with her in the classroom tells me that her reaction was sincere, but it yeah. is it is quite possible that when she flipped out, uh, she may have spoken to colleagues who then um, took advantage of this because their letter is kind of an amplification of her charges. They're very similar. They also accused me of having attacked her and of um, deliberately naming her and publicizing her contact information so that she- Doxing her, right? They, right, uh, so that she was now subject to cyberbullying. This is a media studies department. I assume they know what Twitter is. I mean, when you tweet something, your contact information is right there. I didn't name her anywhere. The only place where her name comes up is in my petition, which necessarily includes her tweets to tell the story. But I have never sent out any emails or done anything, posted anything with her name in it or her contact information. I would never do that. But again, this is clearly a concerted campaign to uh, do me in. And uh, the question then, again, is why? And um, I will say, I'm unable to answer that question. I will say that I have been a thorn in the uh, sort of corporate side of NYU for years. They uh, initiated a horrendous real estate expansion plan for Greenwich Village called NYU 2031 around 2012 without consulting any faculty. And I spearheaded a major uh, effort to resist this, organize the faculty, big faculty alliance. We got 39 schools and departments to uh, issue statements condemning the plan or urging it to be reconsidered, including the Stern Business School and the Department of Economics with its four Nobelists. Uh, we got a lot of publicity. We got celebrity support. We had an op-ed in the Times. It was very successful. And I think it did succeed in um, sort of limiting the plan to the one monstrosity they're building now on Mercer Street. Um, uh, we sued the city over it, too, uh, for approving it. Um, so I, that didn't endear me to the Board of Trustees, certainly. And I'm a named plaintiff in a class action suit over NYU's mismanagement of faculty retirement funds. So I'm, I'm kind of, you could say I'm sort of a whistleblower or troublemaker. But I, I, the last thing I'll say about this is that's sort of ancient history. I think that what's happening now, if there is a connection to the university, which I suppose we'll discover because I am suing uh, the, uh, people who signed the letter, uh, not the junior faculty. I'm not suing them uh, because I don't believe whether they were willing signatories or not, they really had any choice. So I'm suing the 19 others. 
uh, and only them. We'll see if some connection turns up, but, but uh, if there is one such connection, uh, I think it would have more to do with the fact that since, say, April, I've been extremely active in circulating uh, a lot of information about COVID, uh, its origins, possible remedies, uh, stuff about the vaccine that's in the works, uh, stuff about whether asymptomatic cases are even infectious at all. This is scientific stuff, uh, a lot of it. And I've, I've become, oddly, a lone academic voice uh, providing this kind of information to a public audience, as well as, you know, encouraging my students to do the same kind of um, work, you know, to cast a wide net, uh, as, as I do publicly. And NYU is, is very, very heavily invested in the vaccine industry, in the military, in, uh, in the medical industrial complex, I should say. And they're very, very deeply uh, invested in the whole COVID uh, narrative, masking and so on. I think that the idea that someone like me would be on their faculty is probably odious to, to them or could be. So that um, if there is a university connection, if this is not just cancel culture run amok at the academic grassroots level, I, I think it would have more to do with that, with my heresy on this subject, than on those earlier um, uh, sins of mine against uh, the corporation. It's funny. It's almost like, well, a couple of things just occurred to me. One is that you're not, I guess you're not the crackpot conspiracy theorist that people allege, given that you're not jumping on what could easily be a justifiable response to uh, the student. Like you, you just said that she was... Uh, not that you're on trial here, not that we're replicating the Inquisition, but you said you, you actually thought she was sincere. And I do think that's how a lot of things happen. You have like sincere people, then you have people with an agenda, and then there's a combination. Um, and I like that you were, I heard you on Red Scare, and I like that you were, uh, gave a shout out to Gallatin, which is the, the interdisciplinary, I guess, right. uh, department at NYU. But the other thing is like, in a way you couldn't have like asked for a better demonstration of of your course, right? Like they are showing what you're telling. Oh, that is so true. This is the most amazing and painful teaching moment of my career, right? As we say, teaching moment. Right. Yeah, they've just basically proven the truth of, of uh, everything I've said that um, I always warn my class, you know, if you do this in earnest, you make an effort to move out of your comfort zone, okay? I don't care what your politics are. Uh, and, and look into these things, you will end up uh, coming to realizations that you're going to have trouble sharing with some people. I mean, not always. You know, some kids have very cool parents and friends who, who are just interested. I mean, one of my students this semester says in his letter, in my defense, that his whole family has been sitting around the computer listening to the class. I mean, this is like beyond gratifying for me. You know, the only upside to all this is that I've gotten such wonderful support and, and so much vivid testimony to my effectiveness as a teacher, which means the world to me. Mm. I mean, that's why I got into media studies in the first place. I didn't get a PhD in communications. My PhD is in English. I mean, I was a Shakespeare scholar right. and, and film. 
And I, I moved into this just out of public concern and an interest in, in having people understand media and wrote mostly for uh, magazines with wide readerships, you know. Well, to that teaching moment, that, that, that's actually what I want to ask about because, I mean, in a larger sense, isn't the whole academic world kind of struggling with this issue of whether the appropriate way to go about teaching kids is to encourage them to read everything and discover things for themselves or to give them the right text and tell them to avoid the wrong text. Like there's, there's a school of thought that is very much in that other direction now. Uh, that's a little bit more censorious, um, that believes pretty strongly in, you know, some things are just incorrect and, uh, that aren't worth reading. Uh, and whereas the traditional, uh, idea is that we read everything and, you know, even the things that are horrible. Uh, right, like Mein Kampf. Is a, right, exactly. Are. Right, right. Uh, and, and now, and now, I think there's a there's a there's a, a tendency to sort of say there's no worth in even learning for yourself about these things. Oh, that's so, absolutely true. Right. So, I mean, are, is, is it possible that you're you become kind of a symbol on on that front a little bit as well? Well, yeah, I I certainly have. Um, Calling it a school of thought, I think, is dignifying it. (laughs) It's not thought at all. It's thoughtlessness, the school of thoughtlessness, you know, um, and it's not a school, therefore, because you're not teaching anybody anything except groupthink. And and that's what's that's what's happening. Uh, It's it's very oppressive. It's it's just like. It sounds hyperbolic, but it's like going to school during the Cultural Revolution or, or you know, um, after Gleichschaltung, which is the Nazis term for, they call it, it's like streamlining. It's when they made all the cultural institutions, they Nazified them all, you know. So, of course, there was stuff you couldn't read. I mean, it would be a crime to read it or even bring it up. And it's kind of like that now. I mean, many of the people who've been attacked by their colleagues, as I have, tend to be toward the right, you know. I mean, Scott Atlas was attacked by the Stanford faculty for, you know, working uh, under Trump on health policy. And um, Alan Dershowitz has been attacked by the Harvard faculty for his you know, legal advice to that uh, effort after the election. But um, so the right tends to focus on, on this problem of uh, deplatforming and, and censorship. And because of the, you know, prevalence, the, the power of social justice ideology throughout academia, it does tend to be against people who've sinned against uh, the social justice pieties, who tend to be conservatives, who, who take the most hits. But as my case shows, you don't have to be on the right to be uh, attacked this way. I hear, I've heard from many people uh, professors at other schools who've had their, uh, you know, slings and arrows, uh, f- had, had, had those shots at them, risked uh, getting fired. Some have been fired. Uh, and they're, you know, longtime left people. Uh, but left, you see, you both understand, I'm sure, that the left today is not the left. It's not your grandfather's left. It's not the left that I remember, you know, that I have long considered myself part of, you know, which is anti-war, you know, which is about rectifying grotesque income inequality, strengthening the working class, certainly civil rights. 
um, you know, there's a whole range of gender equality. Yeah, all that, you know, yeah. definitely. Uh, those are, I, I see them as left issues. I mean, many of them are also libertarian issues. Um, so what the left has now become is a pro-censorship uh, army. Uh, they want censorship. So um, the left has changed immensely. And I think that I'm uh, a, a sort of a casualty of that. I would say that something we talk about a lot is on this show um, is the acceptance of uh, the more censorious tendency, um, which winds up being actually a quite uh, right wing reactionary thing. Um, right. And, um, you know, which empowers like Facebook, right? You have people who think it's a good idea to give these corporations more power as if they're going to have they're going to be noble and objective and protect the downtrodden. Um, and the example I always give is that, you know, the people who are the biggest casualties of this, and these are people who the left purports to care about and, and does, I think, in large part, are, for instance, is um, Palestinian critics of Israel, which sounds a bit niche, but it really is true. They are at the forefront of the censorship. We saw, a you know, both uh, Palestinian journalists and civilians just get their Facebook accounts deactivated. And, and yeah, so I think, I mean, I think there's a, and there is groupthink on the left and there is, uh, if you talk about cancel culture, you're kind of accused of not caring about social justice or racial justice or economic justice. Um, and then because there's this cancel culture of that discussion, there are a lot, there is an overrepresentation of right wing, of the right wing in that, in that field, in that area. But that's not because it's incompatible with leftism it's because there is a you know this cancel culture that does exist um and i, I interviewed chomsky for my own my other show and you know he said the only thing that, that's new about cancel culture he says it's been around for you know for a while is that now for like the first time the left is embracing it yeah well i was pleased to see him support that statement um all right. Uh, several people have sent him my petition, which he did not sign. I mean, which was disappointing because here's, here's the guy who notoriously wrote the preface to Robert Forisson's um, Holocaust, in Holocaust in a book. Right. Uh, and I don't think um, I've engaged in anything like Holocaust denial. What you say about uh, Palestinian activists is quite is quite true. Uh, one of the things we deal with in the propaganda course, in fact, is Zionism. And I've had a lot of students write great papers, uh, you know, many of them Jewish, on, on uh, Zionism and uh, criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism, which is a very powerful propaganda meme. Interestingly, my colleagues, um, you may probably know about this, that a Palestinian activist named Laila Khaled was supposed to do a Zoom, a Zoom presentation, several Zoom presentations, and one was going to be at NYU. And Zoom uh, was pressured into censoring the presentations, which is outrageous, all too typical. And I signed a petition protesting this. But I was struck by the fact that, that my department is uh, extremely exercised over this and even drafted a special letter of protest over it. So in their, in their you know, remember how Chomsky talks about worthy and unworthy victims? Yeah, yeah, right. Right. So she's a worthy uh, victim of censorship. I'm an unworthy victim 
of, of censorship in as much as they're trying to censor me themselves, you know. There is this double standard, and you're quite right. There's an important point you make that has to be stressed, is that th this sector of the left, you know, we, whoever it, whomever it includes, I mean, maybe it's the Bernie sector, you know, maybe it's the Hillary supporters. I mean, who knows? It, but broadly speaking, it's kind of the left liberal yeah. um, uh, uh, m masses. As a uh, leftist, I want to send the liberals to the gulag. Right. You know, they have essentially been weaponized in support of corporate objectives. You see, it's absolutely right to note that they and Facebook are on the same page, that they and Google are on the same page. You know, Google owns YouTube. YouTube has been taking down videos, canceling accounts all over the place and, and burying references to, you know, what they call sites of misinformation. So if I can no longer really tell my students to do their research by using Google. You know, for years you could say, you know, the counter narrative is just a click away. This is what makes younger people especially receptive to the other side of the story. And I always took great comfort from this and used it in my course. I can't do that anymore with Google because Google, it's just outright propaganda. The first four or five pages of search results are all pushing the mainstream narrative. Um, so that there's this weird kind of um, uh, unity between the campus left, certainly, and other sectors of the left, on the one hand, and then corporate behemoths like those social media, so-called social media companies, and big pharma. And you've got banks. kind of, yeah. what's that? And banks also. And ba and and bank, bank, right, banks. I mean, why would corporate universities like NYU be so, so, uh, adamant and militant in enforcing social justice ideology institutionally. You know, why do they hire still more bureaucrats to oversee this kind of policing? Why is there this sort of bureaucratic apparatus and not just in universities, but in corporations and in the government? You know, that's very interesting. That's very telling. Yeah, we, we I call that woke washing. Uh, which, I'm going to steal that. That's yeah, good. Please do, yeah. Um, I mean, we saw this, I bring this example up all the time, but it's just so telling, which is you have um, Cedric Richmond, who uh, Biden named to this previously non-existent um, office. And he's has a bad, you know, he was a congressman and he has a bad record on energy issues. Um, and it's, we, what, what he's really doing actually is creating it's something called like liaison of public engagement or something. He's actually creating yeah. something that's dedicated to um, reaching out to white Trump supporters or white conservatives, which is so interesting because anyway, that's kind of a separate story. But the point is that when the sunrise movement, you know, dared to criticize that his naming uh, Biden naming him, Jonathan Martin, this, you know, reporter at the New York Times, not an op-ed writer, but a reporter, tweeted um, that they were from the beginning uh, going after the most influential black staffer 
uh, Biden's most influential black staffer, which was such a weaponization uh, oh, yeah. of identity politics. And of course, like the people most harmed, this is the big irony, the people most harmed by this, by, by this are the victims of like environmental racism. I mean, climate stuff affects everyone, yeah. but it is just such a, even by their own kind of metrics, they're violating their alleged principles. And it's so frustrating and um, something we have to be vigilant about. Oh, you're so, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've noticed this, that, I mean, here we're, you know, the, the kind of social justice phraseology is now used to cast mandatory vaccination as an issue of fairness and equality and black people should get these shots first, uh, as well as older people, right? Speaking of eugenics, I mean, black people are rightly highly distrustful of official medical mandates uh, because of a long, gruesome history of their exploitation and, and uh, torture by medical authorities. I recommend a Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. It's just a great history of all this. So they are naturally uh, suspicious and rationally suspicious of, a, of an insufficiently tested vaccine with um, a, a, an mRNA technology that's never even been used on human subjects. It's been rushed to market. Uh, there is no knowing what kind of autoimmune response it could kick off or when, right? But it's cast as uh, we must do the right thing by, by people of color and give them the shots first. Well, you know, when they were using black people in South Africa as guinea pigs, uh, there were protests there, not covered in this country's press. Uh, rightly, protest, and, and in Brazil, uh, protests over the fact that here again, they're using black people as test subjects uh, for a vaccine that's gonna make people billions and billions of dollars. The, the thing, Katie, that you're describing really, I think, dates back to Obama, who, who was, you know, as our first black president, was free to front for five more wars over the two that his predecessors had started and to, you know, serve the banks and, uh, you know, rack up a really horrendous record on civil liberties, the worst of any modern president, uh, much worse than Trump's. Uh, but you couldn't criticize him because if you criticized him, you were a racist. Right. And I think Hillary was supposed to do the same thing by being our first female president. Uh, and I think that Kamala Harris, you know, once Biden finally collapses uh, irrecoverably, uh, will be used in the same way. Um, you know, our first black female president, she'll be used to front for all this. I, I mean, I don't think it's going to work very well uh, because she's not that popular with anybody, right. including black people. Including black voters, yeah. Um, I think that, um, you know, you asked how, how people could fall for this stuff. And I, I guess I want to make a confession that when Obama was president, I really was someone who I was distracted by the racism towards him. And of course, what we could have done was, you know, walked and chewed gum at the same time, pointed it out, but not excused him from. I also uh, liked him personally. What'd you say? I liked him personally. Yeah, I, I found, I mean, now I actually hate, I, now I kind of hate him more than anyone else since right. he decided to leave his, you know, mansion in Martha's Vineyard to um, block Bernie, block Keith Ellison, 
discourage the NBA uh, from going on strike and go like windsurfing with uh, Richard Branson. But I did find him very appealing at the time. I was, and I, even the second, I have to admit that even this, I cried both times he was, he was, he won. Uh, really inexcusable the second time. Give myself a bit of an out the first time. But I remember writing about a lot, like, and I was focused more on that, on the racism that he faced, which was true. But it was also like, you know, there was a lot of racism in the way the banks were bailed out and in the way that Geithner and Summers handled that. And the best line slash the worst line of the Hillary campaign was that thing where she said, well, breaking up the banks and racism, no. Which was like, not what anyone was saying. And also there was a racialized, that was a racialized policy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, th- listen, Katie, don't feel bad. I've, I've had the same, I, I could tell similar stories. I, yeah. I, I, I'm not representing myself here as someone who's always been immune to that kind sure. of appeal. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're only human. I mean, I'm from Illinois, so I kind of had Obama's number. But I was I was still you know supporting him. Uh, I I didn't vote for him. I haven't voted for a Democrat since 1992. But I I I thought you know this gets us into election theft, yeah. which is a big subject for me. But uh, I remember I'll take it back even further to the Clintons. You know when the Republicans were piling on Clinton over the Monica Lewinsky thing. I was uh, uh, pr- felt protective of him. Uh, you know, in other words, some politicians are blessed in their enemies. Yes. Obama yes. was blessed in his enemies. Yeah. And uh, Clinton was blessed in his enemies. So he had all these sort of Christianist troglodytes and others, you know, attacking him yeah. on moralistic grounds. But many of the charges against the Clintons were actually completely true. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I read... Um, um, uh, Partners in Power by Roger Morris. He's a liberal Democrat. I think it was in the 90s he wrote this book uh, that I realized, oh my God, you know, all these gates that they att- attached to the Clintons' names, you know, Travel Gate and all this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. yeah. They're crooks, you know. <laughs> they're yeah. part of, they come from, his thesis is, they come from, came from a, compl- a completely corrupt political culture in Little Rock, and they brought that to Washington and uh, succeeded in basically worsening the corruption in Washington. But the fact is, we've all been, we have all been played over the years uh, through this sort of um, sideshow of partisan politics, you know, mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people uh, I know on the right and not just on the right who sincerely think that Trump is some, up against the deep state and uh, was going to drain the swamp. And uh, I, I actually don't believe that. I don't think anyone can get to the level where they're allowed to run for president, however much of an insider they may appear, without having been sort of vetted already. The point is, this brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. It isn't just my students. We, we are all obliged to make some effort to withstand the emotional pull of propaganda that that pushes our buttons, you know, not not our enemies' buttons, our buttons, and uh, you know, resist that pull and and try to keep your head and think clearly about what's being offered to you and who's offering it and what kind of appeals they're using, and understand that there's a tremendous amount of 
contrary information and data that we are simply not getting in, in a country like this one at the moment with a press such as we have now. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like this, you know? I mean, I, I wrote for the Times. I wrote like four or five op-eds. I was always on NPR. Uh, I was tolerated, right, until I published my book on the theft of the 2004 election, Fooled Again, in 2005. And then I was uh, rebranded as a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And that's, that's when uh, that opened my eyes to a lot because I studied how that meme evolved. You know, it was developed by the CIA. This is uh, established fact uh, to discredit critics of the Warren Report in 1967. And, um, you know, w once you see the truth, uh, uh, you've got to try to stick with it wherever it takes you, wherever the evidence takes you. I think that's the obligation of any professor, you know. I think that higher education should be uh, enabling people to think for themselves and to keep an open mind. And sadly, tragically, uh, a lot of my colleagues don't see it that way, you know? Yeah, to that point, this is the last question I, I have for you, but I, but I wanted to kind of wrap up with this. Getting back to your case, let's say that everything works out for you, that there's, there's no action, there's no investigation, there's no, nothing bad happens to your job. It still ends up being a pretty powerful moment in terms of the message that it sends to other faculty uh, and to kids who might be thinking about writing this or that in their papers. And can, can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon as well? Like, you know, chilling effect. Yeah. Like the chilling effect, because I, cause I hear that it's, it's interesting. I used to hear that only from academics and now I hear that constantly from newsrooms right like that's a thing that i'm hearing all the time from journalists now which is that man i'm not even thinking about pitching this story anymore right because i right. just don't want i don't want to deal with what's going to come back if, if i if i uh talk about this uh which is just as bad as being told you can't write about it right oh that's absolutely true that that's been in play for decades of course i mean in order to rise within the world of journalism as in academia Sure. You have to develop an instinct for what not to touch, you know. There's a great right, book. I think that universe is just expanding a lot. <laughs> exactly. It's, exp it's expanding and the pressure has become more uh, explicit. It, it, mm. it, you know, the, 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 the sort of brutality of the suppression is more, is more clearly manifest. It's in our face more now. Uh, people feel much more vulnerable now. So, yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, if, if, if the purpose is to make me an example, they've already managed to do that pretty, pretty well. You know, I, I, I should add uh, that uh, I, I have a GoFundMe page where people can help me uh, pay for my lawsuit. Uh, I am suing those colleagues uh, out of principle, okay, beyond what they've done to me personally. And I mean, I, I have Lyme disease, uh, the stress, believe me, I don't need, it's not been pleasant. So, of course, uh, on my own behalf, I want some kind of um, restitution, but this is a matter of principle. This kind of thing has got to stop, okay? Uh, free speech and academic freedom are at serious risk of disappearing entirely, uh, in which case we're not going to be living in a country even remotely comparable to the democratic republic that is ideally the form of government we're supposed to have.
in which I think all right-thinking people believe. They believe in that ideal, you know, however short of it this country has fallen over the centuries. So um, this lawsuit is, is definitely a protest against what's happening to so many of us and through us to the whole society. So uh, if people can, you know, donate a little, I know these are tough times. Um, the money's going to go directly into an escrow account that my lawyer will manage because there's going to be depositions and, and I expect it to be an arduous process. Um, but uh, however it shakes out, uh, Matt, it, it has served the purpose it was meant to serve. You know, speaking of Chomsky, uh, I remember him referring to Vietnam as uh, a demonstration model, you know, is it the demonstration effect that, that pulverized this country that dares to uh, resist, you know, same with Syria, same with Venezuela, um, uh, same in a way with Bolivia. Uh, so it's a bit grandiose to compare myself with those, you know, horrendous historical episodes. But again, it's not just me, you know. It's anyone who, who has the temerity to dissent and to believe that the university should be a place uh, where dissent is, is permitted, should be a safe space, you know, a phrase I use with an asterisk because it's itself kind of an oppressive phrase. Uh, I will say, too, that uh, I'm going to release all the letters that have come in on my behalf. There's well over 50 of them by now. And one of the things the students say uh, about my teaching, and this is relevant not so much to me as it is to those attacking me, is that my class, my classes have been unusual in their experience precisely because I do not ever enforce any kind of orthodoxy, which they feel they're subject to in so many of their other classes, that there's a kind of you know, uh, social justice or liberal groupthink that you dare not contradict in any way. So a lot of students sit there silent and feel intimidated, bullied even, if they happen to speak up. And uh, that, that doesn't happen in my classes. I don't allow that. Uh, you know, everyone is free to speak up. And that's what universe, the fact that I even have to be sitting here saying this is, is just shocking to me. But that's what's, that's, what's, that's what's become of us now, you know. Do you have students who disagree with you in class? Always. Yeah. I welcome that. I mean, I, I always have them disagree. Of course they disagree. Listen, just as I, like you, have fallen for, you know, various propaganda drives in the past, you know, so I, like them have often bristled when people suggested certain things to me and thought that that's ridiculous. That just can't be true. You know, that's crazy. It makes you kind of angry, which is interesting, you know, mm -hmm. because often the thing you're being asked to consider strikes at something that's a part of your identity. Yeah. So naturally I have students who, who start vigorously shaking their heads and, and, you know, you know objecting and I'll say to them, you know, look, I, I, I hear you, okay? Uh, but again, I'm not, I'm not an oracle, so um, I urge you to look into this. If it matters so much to you, just do the reading. I mean, one of the letters, this is from maybe 15 years ago, a kid took my propaganda. Of course, I had them read um, Manufacturing 
the manufacturer of consent by Chomsky and Herman. And this kid was, uh, you know, a believer in the nobility of American foreign policy. And it just made him mad. It just pissed him off. I said, look, okay, in this chapter, look at his sources, read the footnotes. Is he right or is he wrong? <laughs> That's all we can determine. Is what he's saying true or false? I mean, there are ways to figure this out. And he, he, he found this to be a life-changing experience. He, he read the footnotes, he, uh, the sources, and he realized, oh, my God, you know, Chomsky's right. They're right about this. And he rethought everything. So, yeah, disagreement is part of the educational process. And have you changed your mind on things through debate and discussion with your students? Yeah. Anything? Sure I have. Sure I have. I've changed my mind about many things. I mean, often people will adduce their own personal experience of something that I had not considered. Um, the letters attest to my uh, flexibility in that way. That's, that's how you learn, you know. But I mean, often our professional training, whether it's J school or whether it's uh, graduate school or medical school or law school, you know, it tends to kind of... Um, beat that out of us, you know, it tends to make us more certain and readier to support the status quo and not to do things that will challenge it, you know. And then that is further reinforced by the, the prospect of unemployment if you don't continue to do that or the unavailability of funding. So the whole system is kind of uh, corrupted, uh, you know, by, by powerful interests, which is um, beyond worrying, right? I, would, I just wanted to say, I guess, that um, I, I disagree with you on masks, but what's interesting is I was actually talking to a, a doctor um, about this, and he does too, um, but he also was adamant that, you know, that's not a fireable offense. Um, <laughs> I hope you know, not. And it was, yeah, and, and he's someone who works in, like, you know, urgent care, uh, critical care. Um, and is a pulmonologist. And he actually, he, we should have him on, Matt, because he had some interesting things to say about, for him, it's kind of a, um, a the downside of masks is so low. And his point is that also, they, it's not that they protect individuals, so that Danish study isn't that relevant, he would say. It's that they protect others from individuals as opposed to the other way around. Right. But I do really want to say that something I think is extremely important, and you mentioned that you weren't being grandiose about this, and it's not just you, but the making certain things taboo and render and, and naming them conspiracy theories, that does have real-life impact on the lives and deaths of people, especially when you look at something like Syria and Bolivia and Venezuela, which you mentioned, right? Like right. the sanctions of those countries are killing people. Yeah, no, and the no fact kidding. that you, yeah, and again, there is this thing. There's this like, there's a tendency for in some areas. There's a social justice within these borders. Like there's a nationalistic social justice, um, and the racism and uh, imperialism that occurs in other countries is kind of like overlooked. But I do think that's really important to remember because when 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 people are deemed crackpot conspiracy theorists for talking about. Syria for talking about, we've had on Aaron Mate, and he uh, testified in front of the UN. Like he's not, I don't think he's that much of a crackpot theorist if he's allowed to testify in front of the UN, but he's dismissed 
by most places. Luckily, the nation publishes him. But that, again, that is a way of letting the U.S. government off the hook for impoverishing and really, like, killing people through sanctions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm good friends with Piers Robinson. You may know him, yeah. the British academic who runs this working group on Syria. And they have done amazing work exposing the, the lies about the Assad's chemical attacks on his own people, which it's war propaganda. Yeah. And they've done a terrific job. And he has therefore been attacked as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, and they sometimes throw me in there too, because I'm on Cy Hirsch uh, yeah. is like a man without a country now. Um, there's something called the Organization for Propaganda Studies, which uh, Piers started in Britain, and I'm on the board with him. So that has given uh, you know the Guardian and other uh, gatekeeper uh, media uh, grounds for throwing us all into the hopper as uh, dangerous conspiracy theorists. Yeah, well now you know now conspiracy theory is being cast. And it has been for a few years now as uh, not harmless, but actually dangerous. Right. Uh, this started when that kid Edgar Madison Welch went into the Comet Pizza place and fired a rifle into the ceiling. And it was all immediately uh, covered in screaming headlines that this guy was a Pizzagate conspiracy theorist. See what happens. And the same thing just happened in Nashville. Uh, that, that explosion, which is extremely bizarre. Uh, said to be the work of this 5G conspiracy theorist, right? So what we're, we're being told is something that David Cameron said five years ago publicly, conspiracy theorists are more dangerous than terrorists. He actually said that. And Francois Hollande proposed legislation in France to criminalize conspiracy theory, right? Now, this is all kind of morphing into the idea that misinformation on the COVID vaccination or masks uh, is putting people's lives at risk, is, is threatening grandma's life, you see. And that gets us down to the essential historical fact that we're now living in a moment which is simply the culmination of the history of modern propaganda. It starts with World War I, really. That campaign against Germany was a masterpiece of emotional manipulation through fear and anger, that people were terrified and outraged by the Huns' horrendous atrocities against the Belgian people, impaling babies on bayonets, cutting off the breasts of nurses, you know, crucifying a Canadian soldier. None of these things happened, completely made up, but they succeeded in making millions livid in the UK and uh, here in this country. They all signed up, they went to fight. My grandpa was one of them, got wounded in the arm. Uh, that had a very powerful effect and it has never really changed. It is that playbook, making people fear that they are under attack so that anyone who demurs or dissents is posing a mortal threat to them, okay? That's what it was throughout the Red Scare, the communists, they're attacking us, they're undermining us, the war on terror, right, after 9-11. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful for, for his point and yours, which is that just discussing this cannot be grounds for termination. Because if it is, we're not, we're not living in a free society, we're living in a kind of cult. 
All right, Mark, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Really appreciate so it. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep an eye on this and good luck with this, uh, seeing this through and hope it all works out. And, um, you know, let, let us know if and when there's a resolution and we'll, we'll be sure okay. to publicize Well, I, I have to say, I enjoyed the hell out of this with both of you guys. It was just a great conversation. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, great. I, will, I will keep you posted. And I, again, I, I thank you for having me on. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. You know what I like about that? I mean, look, it's a a horrible story, and it's kind of of a part of a theme of stuff that we've been talking about a lot for a year or so. You know, he teaches a course in propaganda. I know. And in America... When you when you're taught propaganda, they always teach you, okay, it's Nazi Germany, it's the Soviets, it's whatever. But American propaganda is so much better, and yeah, and they don't they don't come in and like red pencil stuff. They just they call you crazy, uh, or or they come up with some other formulation. And look, he he might be wrong about all sorts of things, right? Yeah. But the 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 core idea that conspiracy theories are more dangerous than terrorists, which is like a rising belief now. Um, you know, it's a thing, right? I mean, I think this yeah. is like kind of a canary in the coal mine kind of a story, frankly. For- yeah. And I, and I think that also, you know, the, the thing that really bothers me about the way that conspiracy, like the weaponization of, the, of conspiracy theories. No, sorry. What would that be? The, the, the toxifying, is that a word? Making something toxic? We should, can we make that into a thing? The toxifying of alleged conspiracy theorists is that it really leaves, it really sanctions other theories, right? So like, I, you are a 9-11 truther, right? And I don't, re, I don't agree with the, that. I don't think that they make a convincing case. But the fact that that makes you a crackpot while believing that there were WMDs in Iraq doesn't make you problematic. It makes you uh, NBC, MSNBC material. That's right. really like there's a there's a real inherent like value judgment that is not at all like principled or consistent. Um, and also, there are conspiracies that happen. Like but, if you look, just yeah, conspiracy just means breathe. Conspire means breathe together, right? So so the things that you know banks do with. Uh, you know, the Senate, they're, they're open conspiracies, right? So we're, the conspiracies are all, all the time. Uh, the, the problem is with, with what we're, we're living through this weird period where they're, where they're trying to like almost criminalize things that we used to just ignore. Like, I, 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 lo- I love the, um, the scene in Men in Black. You ever, you ever seen uh, uh, where uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, they're desperate to find out the, you know, like, what actually happened and they go, well, we got to go to the news and they go, they go to the weekly world news and that's where the actual real information Yeah, right. I, yeah, right. yeah. Well, there's, I like like a, yeah. there's like a grain of truth to that yeah, there where, is. Where, where like if you look in, in, the, in the corners of like sort of fringe media and, you know, people who've been laughed at or whatever, like you'll, you'll often find stuff that, you know, maybe it's not put the right way or it's researched, yeah. you know, sloppily or whatever, but there's like, things in there that have been kind of uh, closed out of conventional right. wisdom that are really, really worthwhile, you know, and uh, they're, what they're trying to do is shut the door on all that. Yeah. And that, that is freaky. And the ick factor that you write about. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right. And, and he's a classic it, example of that. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and also the, um, 
uh, wait, what were you just saying? Conspiracy theory. Oh, and the other thing that is similar to this in some ways is the right wingification of things. So like, oh, yes, yeah. it is. I think it's an outrage that Tucker Carlson entertains the serious stuff and MSNBC and CNN don't. But instead, what people say is that is clearly a fringe right wing conspiracy theory because Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are the only people who talk about it. No, the outrage is that no one else does. Right. Yeah. Tucker Carlson does like a, a series on the impact of private equity and hedge funds on small town America. And, yeah. and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's that's a right wing trope. Like, no, yeah. it's it's just it, it it's, should be on 60 Minutes. Right. Exactly. Uh, but it's it's not for, for and, whatever reason. And we, I saw, you know, a lot. There's this talking point. We see Mark Warner said it and Larry Summers, all praise be upon him said it, which is, you know, why is Bernie working on something with Holly? Like, clearly, if you're working with Josh Holly, it's a bad idea. And right. again, no, the point is, it's a shame that the right way, and honestly, if you're a leftist or even a liberal, you should be wanting the left to carve that out more than they are. And you shouldn't be leaving it. You shouldn't be giving Republicans the chance to stake that, to stake that, that territory. Right. But again, it's this guilt by association false equivalency. It's really awful. And it's it's not looking at things on the merit. It's just looking at it's like circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just America for all of its faults used to be a really great place for crackpots uh, and people who had weird ideas and yeah. weird beliefs and experimented with all kinds of odd stuff and started um, alternative communities and right. you know, some of them were completely nuts, right? And that was fine. That's part of our history. Yeah. But they're trying to phase that out. They're trying to they're, they're trying to take that part of our you know of uh, you know our culture away, which is um, really unfortunate. Our cultural legacy. And, yeah, and the, it, and the, it is. Yeah. And the Clinton example is so important because there really was a vast right wing conspiracy and. And, and they suck. There are real things that they yeah. did, and they are so lucky that they had those insane right wingers attacking them because they they use that as a shield yeah. all the time. And Oops. they, you know, what the vast right wing conspiracy was? Apparently, part of it was Monica Lewinsky. No, that was real. Anyway, that was great. That was really fun. Yeah. Uh, well, not not fun. It was. Uh, interesting and kind of scary, but uh, laughed, good, I uh, cried, roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, exactly. And um, thanks for listening in. And yeah. we will, uh, thanks for uh, tuning back into us after the holiday. Hope you had a good Yes. Day. Thank we'll, you for, uh, we'll hope see you, you missed us. Hope you missed us. I'm sure you did. Rate and review us. Subscribe to us on YouTube. And shout out to our producer, Dan Halperin, and Sheer Mag, the band that does our theme song. Lots of people are asking about that. So wanted to put that out there. Excellent. Yep. All right, thanks. See you next week. Thanks. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.